in between our worship services. Steve is going to lead our prayer time at 1020 right here in this uh, Goodwin room, praying uh, and asking God to grant wisdom and help and direction with regards to facilities and land or anything else uh, that the Lord has provided for us in the future. We, we seek his wisdom because we know that all wisdom comes from above. This morning, let's turn to Exodus chapter 9. We're going to read verses 13 through 35. We, can study, we continue our study in the book of Exodus with what is called the seventh plague. Last week we looked at the, the fifth and the sixth, the death of livestock and, and boils on man and beast. It was horrendous. The seventh plague begins to slow down the story. You might even say it intensifies the details in order to heighten the tension of the text. God is building to the climax of his story. It's a showdown, a showdown between the God of the Hebrews and the man who believes he's the God over Egypt and all the other false gods of Egypt. And so as the tension mounts, God says, I'm going to gain victory and I will receive my glory. We're going to use chapter 9, verse 13 to begin our study. And remember, this is God's word. It's not any man's thoughts or even fanciful tales. This is literally God's word to his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I'll send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I'll cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I'll let you go, 
and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they're late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father, as we approach your word, we ask for the help and ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that through that spirit, you would give to your people the ears to hear, that we might know what your spirit says to the church. Would you be gracious and kind, willing to use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus? And I pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Without warning, these frozen white balls between the size of a golf ball and a tennis ball began to fall from the sky like a sheet. And I was at work, standing in the admissions office of the seminary I attended between the first and second year of my school, and it just started to rain, and everybody thought that was normal. What began as a, as a pretty ordinary Midwestern summer shower turned into the, the loudest storm that I'd ever seen, the most violent one I had seen, so that indoors all of us stood there with our mouths open as these white balls careened from the sky. And the whole event probably lasted five or ten minutes, but when it was finished, windows were broken, cars were damaged, and these white balls were piled up all over the ground. If you've ever seen a hailstorm, you know what I'm talking about. It is, it's really awe-inspiring in its power, but it's also one of the oddest things that weather can do. When the storm was over, I, I, I looked up what had just happened, and I, I learned that these ice balls had dropped between 40 and 80 miles per hour to the earth. I had two thoughts. First, I've never seen anything like this. Where in the world do I live that such a thing can happen? But then my second thought was, I'm so glad I wasn't outside with Susan and my kids, because there is not an umbrella strong enough to provide shelter when ice pours from heaven. The storm that we just read about took place in Egypt in January. Hailstorms are really rare in Egypt. This one was the rarest. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. And so unlike the five-minute storm that I witnessed in St. Louis, this one lasted long enough to kill you or to get your attention. 
long enough to bring complete destruction on trees and plants and livestock and people. It lasted long enough for Pharaoh to summon an envoy and say, build a structure, carry it out so that your heads are covered, go find Moses and Aaron, bring them back to me. Long enough for Pharaoh to say with laughable irony, I think we've had enough of this thunder and hail. And yet into the midst of all of that devastation, there is woven into the text this concept of of shelter. And it's a concept that's carried throughout the Bible. Dozens and dozens of times, God is shelter, God is refuge, God is strong tower, God is fortress, God is shield. 2 Samuel 22.2 David is, is fleeing from, the, uh, from Saul, and he's finally done with it all, and he cries out to God, and he says, Lord, you have been my shield. So many psalms repeat the same language, Psalm 18, 31, 46, 61, 71, 91, even 119. Why does the Bible speak this way? It is because living in the Egypt of this world means that you will constantly need shelter from various types of storms. I mean, life has plenty of moments when you feel buffeted. And while you're in the Egypt of this world, aren't you tempted to to look for lesser gods to somehow take shelter beneath to shield you? Your pride says, you know, I think I'll shelter myself. I'll make some good plans. I'll work hard, I'll have a little luck along the way, and I wonder if you're tempted toward self-reliance, tempted to think of, of God as a last resort. After you've exalted and then exhausted your intelligence, your finances, and your charisma, you look at Exodus 9 and you say, well, clearly the Lord strips all that away. Because when the whole sky is falling on your head, there really is only one shelter, and it's not a cattle stall. God provides one shelter for salvation. So we're going to look at this text under three headings, the purpose, the picture, and the provision. We're going to start with the purpose. The plagues are are literally strikes. They are blows from Yahweh against the false gods of Egypt, against Pharaoh himself. And they come in waves, one, two, three, then four, five, six, then seven, eight, nine, and they grow with intensity and they grow in nearness towards Pharaoh. And so the the one we just read is the longest description of any of the plagues that we've seen so far. Why? Because this is about God's glory. And so if anyone should ever ask, why did God strike Egypt? The narrator answers with this repeated phrase, that you may know for the sake of God's glory. God will make sure that Pharaoh knows and God's purpose. He will make sure that Pharaoh knows his purpose. But also he wants to make sure the entire watching world knows the exact same things. So that it will be known for a thousand generations God's mighty acts And these mighty acts serve to highlight all the more the tenderness of his grace to give shelter to some. God repeats his demand, let my people go that they may serve me. And so these 
3, written in your bulletin, are like purpose statements. We start with verse 14. For this time I'll send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The first readers would have understood this better than you and I do. When God says, I'm going to send all my plagues on you yourself, he literally says, I'm going to send all my plagues on your heart. When the Egyptian people thought about the afterlife, this is the way they thought it worked. If you are to enter into eternity, your heart is, is weighed upon a scale and one side is a feather. And the only way that you could ever enter into eternity was that your heart was light enough at the very end. Which is why the Bible repeatedly says Pharaoh's heart was hard. Pharaoh's heart was heavy. And so you recognize that there's a word play going on. Pharaoh's heart is so heavy, number one, that God will strike his heart with plagues that are equally heavy. Secondly, the Egyptian people thought Pharaoh's heart was really the source of how their society grew. One pastor said that they believed it was the foundation of their society, that his heart was the source of human progress. That's the reason that the Egyptians thought that Pharaoh was a god. And so to a man who thinks he's a god, and to people who worship a pantheon of gods, Yahweh says, when I unleash my power, you will know that I am unique that I'm the only one able to do whatever I will to do in the way in which I will to do it. I'm the only one who has the strength and the authority to deliver everything I desire to accomplish. Pharaoh, let's be clear, I'm not subject to anyone else's dominion. This is God's way of saying I am omnipotent. I am all-powerful, and I am the only one who holds that distinction an obvious question to ask when reading these plagues is this. If God really is all-powerful, then why doesn't he go ahead and crush Pharaoh completely and then pull his people out of slavery in one single day? Well, the answer comes in verses 15 and 16. He says, by now I could have put my hand out, my hand, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God did these things slowly and deliberately in order to emphasize his power so that his praise would be spread globally. The, the Egyptians worshipped regional gods, fame that, that only stood inside the walls of Egypt, but this is no regional God. So later in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites are going to meet the people of Israel and they're going to say, we've heard about your God. Later, 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines are going to say, we've heard about your God. And here's the reason that we read Romans 9 earlier in our New Testament lesson. Because your God is so powerful that he receives praise and glory in both directions. In other words, he receives it from his righteous condemnation. And then he also receives glory from his very deliberate, compassionate salvation. Pharaoh didn't rise to power on his own. God put him there. 
For this purpose I raised you up. So that even his hard heart is an instrument in the hand of God to show forth the Lord's power. Paul connects this in Romans 9 to explain the sovereign power of God's grace. Think about what this meant to the people of Israel. Think about what it means to you and me. Your God is so powerful that he can raise up the most powerful king on the face of the earth for no other purpose but to accentuate his own glory and power. Glory which is displayed while God rightly judges evil and graciously extends loving kindness to undeserving sinners like you and me. People who were really in bondage under a, a wicked king. It's a physical picture that points to a spiritual reality. God makes this wicked king who seems so powerful to the people whom he has enslaved. God makes that king look tiny in spite of what Pharaoh thinks. Pharaoh belongs to God. Likewise, you can can think of Satan this way. This Satan belongs to God. He's actually here for God's glory and God's purposes. One old Dutch commentator said it this way. Pharaoh does not offer resistance because he's so mighty, but because Yahweh lets him. God uses Pharaoh's resistance to make all people on earth stand in awe of his mighty deeds. In spite of himself, Pharaoh promotes Yahweh's glory. Romans 9, Paul says the exact same thing spiritually. God gets glory in both directions while raising up an enemy to resist him. God crushes that enemy and he rescues his his people. That's the grand cosmic story of the whole of Scripture. It's the grand cosmic story into which you and I live that you may know. This means you and I have an opportunity to testify to the power of God in our own lives, to tell our children and our grandchildren and our acquaintances and friends about a God who reveals himself with such power, but yet is willing to extend himself with such grace. Last purpose statement is found in verse 29. This is after Pharaoh begs for mercy. Moses said to him, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 9 is is sprinkled with Genesis 1 language, creation language. You've got vegetation and plants and animals and trees. So what's happening in this chapter is that God, who created all things, is now undoing all things for his own glory. And and, and though we're talking about power, what we're really talking about is the authority to do something about it. That is, the God who created all things is the only one who has the authority to destroy those same things that he made. Pharaoh, everything that your eyes can see is mine, and I can do with it whatever I want to do. God wants the world to know that he is almighty, uniquely so. He wants the world to know that he is sovereign even over his enemies. 
He wants the world to know that he has authority over everything and no one else does. Why does God want Pharaoh and you and me to know his power? Because God, as God explains his own power, he places his finger on the idol that you and I serve, a God of power. Excuse me, I should say lesser gods of lesser power. Here's what I mean. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God, the whole human race has been alienated from God. And that sense of alienation from God leads every person to seek power at some level in order to make ourselves pretend to feel like we are not finite, as if I'm not frail, as if I'm not weak. And from that fear of powerlessness, the Bible says each of us sets up little idols in order to shield ourselves from the feeling that we really don't have any power. So the story of this plague is that you can set up different idols of power, whatever they would be. Popularity or politics or positions. But none of them provide your heart with a real, true sense of shelter. Because in every one of them, you are stepping yourself out and propping up little silly idols around yourself as if that's going to shield you. Here's who I am. If people know that, then I'll feel safe and sheltered and secure. Here's what I do. But what does a tender-hearted believer do? When God, by his grace, grants you this heightened sense of his power, almighty God, Sovereign over everything, full of authority, you repent of your own pride. Repent of your desire to live in your own power. Repent of your desire to set up these little false gods around you in order to try to hide from your own eyes and from the eyes of the watching world. I really am powerless. One pastor said 95% of what sets the course of your life is completely outside your control. That includes the century and the place in which you were born. It includes your parents and your family, your childhood environment, your physical stature, your genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances in which you find yourself. In short, all we have and all we are is given to us by God. We're not infinite creators. We're finite, dependent creatures. Which means that we don't get to construct shelters for ourselves, but become running in faith to the one who alone holds power. God provides one shelter for salvation. We've looked at the purpose, now let's look at the picture. It's a picture of a false confession. Now in verse 18, God gives a warning, which is also kind of a wink to Pharaoh's pride. Uh, Egyptian kings would brag to those who were under their reign. They'd say, I've accomplished this. It's something that no one has ever accomplished in Egypt since the day it was founded until today. So God hijacks that vocabulary and he says, now you're going to see something in Egypt that no one's ever seen before. Get your livestock, get your people indoors. I'm about to drop hail like no one has ever seen. Now, if you were around for plague number five, this is like a quick side note. 
You're going to wonder, where did Pharaoh get livestock? I thought they died in the fifth plague. But chapter 9, verse 3, made this really clear distinction. That was a plague on the livestock that were in the field. That was a deliberate point being made because there are other livestock who are in stables and stalls and barns. So when chapter 9, verse 6, refers to all the livestock... It either means all those who are exposed to the plague in the field or it means all kinds. Which is to say that quite often when you think you've encountered a contradiction in the scriptures, it's pretty easily explainable when you examine the context. First, let's talk about the severity of this plague. Look at the end of verse 23. The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since the nation began. And then it goes on to tell you that the hail struck down everything that was in the field, both man and beast and and, and, and every plant. And it even broke the trees that were standing out there. And then miraculously, no one was struck in Goshen. The Lord carved out a little spot. Verse 27, Pharaoh in panic calls and gets Moses and Aaron and he says, this time I've sinned, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead to the Lord for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail and I'll let you go and you shall stay no longer. And you read it and it sounds really good. Sounds really good. He's come miles and miles. Probably the first time in his life Pharaoh's ever said, I've I've sinned. The first time in his life he's ever admitted that he was wrong. More than that, he says, God is the one who's right. It's huge. It's huge until you dive beneath the surface. When you look a little closer, you recognize that that his words which sound so full of sorrow, lack a deep, genuine repentance and faith. And so I'm going to borrow from another pastor named Philip Ryken, who pointed this out so well. He says, first, Pharaoh didn't confess his sins to God. He confessed them to Moses and Aaron. Unwilling to confess and pray to God, he, he asked them to pray for them. I've had countless people In my office over the years, people with tears who want to confess their sins to me. Ask me to pray for them. I'm a terrible mediator. All my prayers in all the world cannot save you from your own sins. I'm not God. There is one God who can forgive sins. Charles Spurgeon explains this so beautifully. He says, this isn't saving faith, this is condemning faith. In certain instances, a man's hope in prayer is the result of a condemning faith. There's a justifying faith and there's a condemning faith. When men have enough faith to know that there is a God who sends judgment upon them and there is nothing that can remove those judgments but the hand that sent them and that prayer is the one thing that God's given to move that hand, But yet the person can't pray himself, but instead eagerly cries out for other people to pray for him. 
That kind of faith only serves to to heighten or increase a man's condemnation. He ought to know that if he believes it's true, the only proper thing is to cry out himself to God. That's Pharaoh. Every pastor I know has been called to ERs and deathbeds and in-home visits to people who never thought they needed God until the moment that they begin to panic. I wonder if your own faith is filled so fully with an awareness of your own sin, your own need for Christ, that you don't cry out to other people, but you confess your sins to God for mercy. You also notice that Pharaoh doesn't confess all his sins. He begins by saying, this time I've sinned. You and I have been reading through this book and we go, wait a second, Pharaoh, there's six other times that we have on record about your heart being hardened by your own will. And then, of course, you mention nothing of your own stubbornness of pride towards God, no repentance over crushing the Hebrew people which is a great lesson for us. You and I cannot come to the Lord for grace and mercy and also come denying or minimizing our own sin. Pharaoh's upset. I've done one, maybe two things. They were bad. It's a false confession because it fails to see the depravity of the, of the heart. One of the many reasons that we have a a weekly confession of sin in our worship is not so that you can go through and check off the three or four things that you've done to sin this week. It is to remind you every single week that the list is so long and the problem of my sin is really the deepest problem that I've got. To seek the mercy of a God who's willing to forgive, not the one or two or three or four, but the infinity that you can't even remember. Finally, in the end, Pharaoh didn't turn away from his sins. You see in verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and he hardened his heart because he hated the consequences of his sin. He hated getting pelted by hail, but he didn't really hate his sin. He didn't hate his sin out of a a sense of love and reverence for God. Don't get me wrong. The Bible doesn't say that once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you'll never sin again. But it does say that those who have the kind of faith that God counts as righteousness are those who grieve their sin and hate it because it really is an offense to God. And then instead of running back to that sin with some sort of sneaky delight... You and I in Christ are those who come running to God for shelter and begging for his mercy based on the merits of your king, who is Jesus. God provides one shelter for salvation. The purpose, the picture, will close with the provision. The provision in our text is really twofold. There's a a warning and then there's the word. The warning is found really beautifully in verse 18 and 19. This time tomorrow I'll cause hail to fall on Egypt like never before. Here's what you must do to be saved. Verse 19, send, get your livestock, all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls. 
Egyptians believed that storms came from their gods. Unpredictable, violent outbursts from angry gods. And here's the one true God who mercifully says, warning, judgment is coming. Postmodern readers who read the Bible read these kind of warnings as if they are harsh, as if they are unkind, which is a complete misunderstanding of God's heart. The same God says in Ezekiel 33:11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should turn from their ways and live. The striking blow of hail is a foreshadowing. If we do indeed have ears to hear. I've mentioned several times through this series, Revelation 16. I've mentioned it because it it takes all these plagues from the Exodus and it carries them forward to tell us that those plagues in Exodus are pictures of a greater and more full judgment. The seventh angel in Revelation 16 pours out her bowl in the air and flashes of lightning come and rumbles and peals of thunder from the sky and huge hailstones, the Bible says, a hundred pounds each fell on men who rejected Christ. Was God cruel? Was God unjust in Exodus 9 to give a warning to say this is coming? Was it savage and brutal to tell people, take shelter now? No. It's a gracious provision. I wonder if you can see that today. Can you see that the the warnings of, of Scripture are not like some legalistic threat? You better get right with Jesus. You won't have hell to pay. Y'all didn't know I had that accent. But how kind of the Father. How utterly kind of the Father. To tell us in so many ways that there is a storm of righteousness coming and there's one shelter from which you might be saved. The first provision is a warning. The second is the shelter. And the shelter is the word. Look at verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. In other words, whoever believed God's word acted in faith. They trusted the Lord. Whoever didn't believe just stayed exactly where they were. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The only shelter in the coming judgment is to believe upon God's word. That's still the only way of salvation for sinners like you and me, which is why the Bible picks up in John chapter 1 and tells us that the word of God became flesh and the actual word of God put on skin and dwelt among humanity. Not everyone believed in the word, but, who all, but to all who did believe in Jesus, God's word in flesh, he gave the right to become sons, daughters of God. 
John 10, Jesus goes on to explain that he is the door into which people may enter to receive eternal life. God provides one shelter for salvation, and it's not a cattle stall, it's the Christ. You can enter a lot of doors. A lot of places to make yourself feel powerful. You can go to a lot of places in order to find shelter so that you don't feel as needy and weak as you really are. Exodus 9 says, run instead to the shelter of Christ. Enter the door who is Christ. Come under the shelter that God offers through Christ. And once you are in him... In his house of fellowship, be nourished on Christ in the word and in the sacraments. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is so kind that you would